Welcome to the Armchair Trader podcast. And this week we are talking about the evolving market for carbon credits, which I personally think is going to get bigger and a lot more sophisticated and a lot more mainstream in the years ahead. Um, Some savvy investors getting into this space already, certainly some institutional investors. On the podcast today, we have Dr. James Tanzi, who's joining us. He's CEO of Climate X, a Toronto-listed company, which is doing some very interesting work in this space. Welcome to the podcast, James. Thanks very much. Um, so just to get the ball rolling, can you just give us a, a quick introduction on Climate X, the company, what it actually does in this area? Yeah, so we're a company focused on um, developing carbon credits to meet the demand from companies that have made net zero commitments. So we focus on what's called nature-based solutions. Those are projects that support the restoration or conservation of forest areas, mangroves, uh, agricultural interventions. Um, And so we fund the development of those, whether that's planting trees in Sierra Leone or protecting mangroves in the Yucatan. And uh, we raise capital, we raise risk capital from the markets and we use that to de-risk the projects. Uh, And then fairly early on, we'll speak to large final emitters, buyers of carbon credits and set up wholesale agreements where they'll pre-purchase the credits from us. And that helps us to fund the full project implementation. Um, We focus on nature-based solutions for a pretty simple reason. They're the largest scale projects and they're the lowest cost. But also from a from a sort of impact perspective, um, something around 20% of global emissions is still coming from deforestation and land degradation. We, we tend to forget that when we're focusing on aviation or cement industry or, or the other big emitters. And so we also think that mobilizing capital to prevent and reverse deforestation is probably one of the highest and best purposes of, of, of capital and investment at the moment, because if we can eliminate that, in the next decade, that's a huge reduction in global emissions. Uh, so that that's a big reason for our focus. And for those who are not familiar with the carbon credits market, how it works, effectively, you're out there doing a good thing for the environment, for the planet, um, with, uh, as you say, reforestation schemes. You get credits for that, which you're then able to um, sell to a company that's not necessarily as good for the planet, which is having to um, pay for effectively its abuses. Yeah, it's the, the, most of the companies I've ever worked with in the credit space recognize they've got to you know, reduce their emissions or get to net zero or car, you know, carbon neutral, climate friendly, whichever phrase you use. They're all very similar. You know, most companies, if they really focus on their emissions, they can reduce you know, over a period of time, 10 or 15 percent emissions um, internally. But it, you know, it's very difficult for most companies to get anywhere near zero emissions. So the companies we work with will reduce emissions where they can, and then they use carbon credits to offset the balance of their emissions. Uh, so people tend to think about it as companies, or the critics will say it's companies trying to get out of their obligations. In fact, most of these companies will find the affordable ways of reducing their emissions internally. You know, Effectively, their cost per tonne goes higher and higher the further they go with that. If it costs $100 a tonne for internal emissions reductions and it costs $20 a tonne to buy credits, you can have five times the impact with the same amount of money by investing in, in credits instead of you know, continuing to try and push for internal reductions. So it's very rarely the case that people do credits instead of internal reductions. It's usually part of a whole program. 
And the only way most companies can get to net zero is a mix of, of their own internal reductions and credits. And in terms of you personally, what is it that drew you into this area of climate-related investment and, and what qualifies you to be uh, running a business like ClimateX? I mean, I did my PhD in environmental sciences in the 90s, before, probably before environmental issues are really cool, and um, did that in the UK at East Anglia, which uh, University of East Anglia still has one of the best globally recognized environmental sciences programs. So I got into it early because it was kind of my life's passion and what I was really interested in doing. You know, as a 19-year-old, it was the direction I wanted to go in. Uh, I did my PhD in the same institution, and then I just I literally had no other job other than this since since 1999 in, in working in research related to environment, thinking about climate policy, uh, advising governments on climate policy, working on the 2010 Olympics to make that carbon neutral. Um, and my, I guess my passion or drive for this was just this sense that if we could mobilize capital around issues like deforestation and land degradation, it was one of the uh, most impactful ways of having, uh, you know, reducing climate change risks that, that re- preventing and reversing deforestation seemed to me to be a kind of, you know, an obvious and simple way to at least contribute towards that. And so I've spent, you know, most of the last 20 years working on on projects like this. We did a project in Canada called the Great Bear Rainforest Project, which was 6.4 million hectares of land on the coast of BC, working with coastal First Nations in BC and, and, and ensuring they have a stake in a revenue sharing agreement, but also that we protect the forests that have been their home for the last 10,000 years. So it's, uh, it's a very satisfying area to work in and, and pro- probably not qualified to do much else other than this. Carbon credits, I mean, living in Europe and, and reading the European financial press, they're not without controversy. They're often getting uh, rubbished in, in, in the mainstream press. Um, is that fair? Is, is, is it being misrepresented as an investment structure? Yeah, it is. I mean, there, there's a, some of the, the um, of what's been published has been no better than a, a hatchet job, really. There's, there's definitely a, a, a movement within the environmental sector that sees anything associated with carbon credits as being letting companies off the hook for reducing their emissions. Um, so there's a, almost a sort of ideological view that no carbon credits can ever be good. And I just don't, I don't understand the basis for that, to be honest. Um, so I think that that's one of the challenges is you've got a very aggressive anti-credits sector, um, that, that, you know, I, I don't think anyone's opposed to scrutiny or review of the projects, but, you know, the work that was published, for instance, in the Guardian, the, the team that did that right at the at the top of their webpage says our goal is to shut down any carbon credits. Um, the the work that was done there was had no real strong scientific foundation was widely refuted um, because they used a very selective approach to the way that the carbon credits uh, accounted and measured. Now that's not to say that there haven't been mistakes and errors with with early protocol and protocol development. But it ignores the fact that the registries like Vera have pretty good self-insurance mechanisms. They adapt and modify the protocols over time. They learn from from earlier mistakes, and um, you know it's uh, it's an evolving sector. But it's not as though they haven't already certified hundreds of millions of tons. I mean, Vera has been around for 15, 20 years. You're you're validating these projects to reasonable standards of assurance. 
And for every project that's produced, some of the tons go into a buffer pool. So if there's any changes in the emissions, if there's a fire, then it's a, there's a self-insurance mechanism in place. So it's not a perfect system, but you know, accounting standards for financial reporting uh, evolve and change over time. ESG and impact investing standards uh, change over time. You know, the way that banks measure um, risk associated with mortgages changes over time. The way oil and gas companies measure their reserves change over time. So small changes and improvements in that reporting shouldn't be seen as as a weakness or failure of them. It's actually a sign that they're growing and evolving. And going back to Climate X itself and what you guys are doing, can you just explain a little bit more about how these projects you work on function in practice? It's a really exciting business, actually. I mean, it's the really fun part of the company. So when we started working on credits and, and built put this company together a couple of years ago, it was still the case that most projects were being developed small scale around a, a project site, not really working with governments, um, not getting assent or support, um, just sort of flying below the radar. And the big thing that we recognized was that if you're going to do projects on a really large scale, like 10 to 15 times more volume, You've got to work with governments as partners. You've got to ensure you've got clear legal title over the whole area. Um, and you've got to make sure that communities are being properly compensated as well as part of that. There's no point building a restoration project that doesn't create benefits to some of the poorest people in the world through through you know hiring them to plant trees and paying them for their land. You don't remove that deforestation pressure and have strong uh, development impacts, then the project's not going to work. So we spend a lot of time in the field establishing relationships with local communities, you know, paying leases on land that they own, hiring them to plant the trees, and hopefully as a result of the, the carbon finance having a big development impact as well on their livelihoods. Um, in, in most cases in tropical regions, the most valuable use of the land isn't palm oil or soybeans. It's actually when you're at $20 a tonne, the land is way more valuable um, as a, a carbon reserve or a carbon store. Um, so we really focus on that. Uh, so we spend a lot of time talking to governments, getting legal clarity. We've done that in the state of Yucatan in Mexico, in Suriname. We've done that in Guyana. We're in Sierra Leone. where We've got a very active presence there. And it's all about getting credibility, working with um, landowners and governments and chiefdoms and making sure that it's transparent and it's above board. And then with the, with the communities that everything's done to the standards of free prior and informed consent. We have third parties that make sure that you know people understand the contracts that they're signing and that it's fair and reasonable. So, so we spend a lot of our time and effort on that, getting the foundations in place, and that's a really exciting, really exciting part of the business. And how scalable is this? Because I'm thinking here about, for example, some of the very large institutional investors in in Europe uh, shopping around for high impact projects. Um, if if you get a lot more. Uh, funding coming your way, uh, how how easy is that to deploy and, and how quick can you deploy that in future projects? Yeah, I, I think there's enormous scalability to what we do. I mean, the projects we've developed and launched over the last 12 months in many ways are just pilots. So we're, we're investing in, we've planted about a thousand hectares in Sierra Leone, we'll plant 5,000 hectares over the remaining three years. There's probably one to 200,000 hectares that we could replant if we had the capital and it's quite a modular operation. So we're building nurseries, hiring local people. We can replicate that all across the region. Uh, our sort of pilot work with mangroves in Sierra Leone is initially about 10,000 hectares. 
Um, we think there's 30 to 50,000 hectares minimum on the coast there before we even look at some of the neighboring countries. In Yucatan, we're at uh, initially about 10,000 hectares. There's 100,000 hectares that we've already mapped out. Um, so our ability to scale this is really driven by the availability of capital rather than the technical aspects of the project. And again, we're not, we're not going to get to the scale of, of reduction of deforestation and degradation pressure with little one to 2,000 hectare projects. We've got to think at the, the scale of hundreds of thousands of hectares. Um, and that, and that's, that's the way we, we approach the business and that's the way we've, you know, that's how we've developed KLX over the last year is to prove out that jurisdictional approach, do the planting, get dirt under our fingernails, get trees in the ground and just show people that this can be done. And uh, you recently um, entered into an agreement with a very large Fortune 100 company, um, which uh, we, we can't talk about, um, but we can't name them anyway. But um, uh, can you tell us a little bit more about that? And uh, I mean, it's only just recently been announced um, and, and how that works in practice. Yeah, so we with that company and we will be able to announce them at some point. Um, it's just there. PR department is even slower than their legal department. So we we took a project to them. We, we ran a competitive process late last year. We had about 16 different groups, you know, including some of the trading houses, large corporates uh, in the data room. And this large corporate came up with the best offer um, and the best financing. So basically, we've spent roughly $2 million on the project to date to get it to the stage where it's de-risked. Uh, for the first 5,000 hectares, they'll cover the rest of the capex to do the tree planting um so they'll fund two and a half million dollars of work we pay them back with the first credits that are produced from that project site um so about 10 percent of the production 10 to 12 percent of the production over the first 20 years we use to repay that upfront amount and then they buy the balance of the tons from us at market prices or just below market prices basically so it's a way of funding projects without having to take on debt or do project finance or raise more equity. Our equity is focused on kind of best and highest purpose, which is reducing the risk of the project, uh, securing the land, and then the buyer pays all of the rest of the development costs and guarantees us a, uh, an offtake uh, for, for the tons that we produce. And you mentioned de-risking the projects couple of times already what does that mean in practice when you're doing that so it's a lot of it's around securing land title and making sure you've got clear line of sight and ownership of the carbon rights uh, getting approval from government uh, the technical side is about evaluating how quickly uh, the soil and the above ground biomass um, store the carbon in the in the case of this first project what we're doing is harvesting wild seeds from native forest and replanting rewilding native forest areas across uh, this uh, first you know, ultimately 25,000 hectare area. Um, so over, you know, 30 to 40 years, what you'll have ended up with is a fully restored native rainforest. Uh, and that that's the, the sort of ambition of the project. Um, and so we hire local people to do the tree planting. Um, we hire them to clear, do some of the initial land clearing and do irrigation. And that's initial work is all part of that, that first uh, round of expenditure. Uh, and, and that gets us to the stage where we can show a buyer that we're a real owner operator, that we've got credible, um, you know, feet on the ground, boots on the ground. And we're building off the experience of, of Kev Godlington, who's our director in Africa, who's already planted 10,000 hectares in other parts of Sierra Leone for things like sustainable palm oil production. 
Um, so he knows how to do this and his team knows how to do this and we're just expanding that to do that, the native forest restoration. Uh, so all of that then gets validated by a third party. So, you know, a, a kind of a audit company comes in and makes sure all the trees are where you're saying they are. And then each year they come back and they verify that the, the project is still there. So you have a whole sort of accounting and reporting framework around it as well. And that's pretty critical, isn't it? Because we've I'm not going to na- mention any names here, but we have had situations in the past with green projects um, in Africa where the claims have been made that things were being done that weren't being done. So that, that independent verification is pretty crucial, isn't it? Yeah, it's independent verification at the end of each year. But what we're also building out is satellite monitoring infrastructure so we can see uh, and we can show people every single day what's happening with the growth of these projects. And, and it's just, you know, you need that kind of transparency now to give the corporate buyers comfort that that what you're doing is is clear and is still operating. Um, and we're, so we're very invested in technology solutions as well, where we map it where every single tree is and how it's growing. We look at irrigation levels and fire risk and everything else. So we've got a whole partnership. Um, around that to make sure that we have the, the highest levels of transparency. And when you're looking for future projects, I mean, we've mentioned scaling it up already. Um, what are the sort of ingredients um, that you're looking for where where you can see a scenario where a possible new project might emerge? I mean, the first thing is, is that the reason we do most of our work in tropical countries and equatorial countries is the trees grow three times faster than they do in Canada, where I live, right? It's, uh, it's just incredibly productive systems. So we look for that. We look for operational experience on the ground. We're not an investor that's going to go in and just be a passive investor into other people's projects. We want really strong on the ground operating teams. Um, and you know, clarity around land title is a key thing as well, making sure that we have the rights, we can secure ownership, we can deploy capital into the projects and have certainty about about our, our, our claims. So those are probably the three biggest factors. And you've mentioned already um, Yucatan in Mexico and also the work that you're doing in Sierra Leone at the moment. Um, are there any co- other countries you favour? I know pre- we were speaking last week before you came on the, the podcast and you mentioned that Brazil wasn't necessarily an ideal market for these kinds of projects because there's a lot going on there already. Um, so what, what what sort of areas of the world, if we're looking at the tropics, for example, um, do you still favour? We'll look at most regions in tropical areas. Uh, for us, operating in um, West Africa makes a lot of sense because we have a big presence there already. Um, so we're expecting to sp- expand into other West African countries with a similar model to Sierra Leone. Uh, we expect within Mexico to expand to other parts of Mexico, at least within the Yucatan Peninsula. There's three states in, on the Yucatan Peninsula, and we see a lot of potential there. Um, in in Guyana and Suriname, we have a very big presence now in that part of uh, South America. I mean, technically, it's considered the Caribbean, but on the map, it looks like South America. So, you know, the reason we'll ex- we, we add a lot of value in places like Suriname and Guyana, which are small countries, you know, Brazil's got a mature, uh, mature scientific institutions and lots of local players and domestic capital there. Uh, we don't add as much value there. Um, we, 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 we're, uh, we would be one of many, many players, whereas in these smaller jurisdictions, you know, they're, they're desperate for financing and funding. They don't have the capacity in-house within the country to do the work themselves. So from the perspective of in, you know, how we use our investment capital, going to places where we add a lot more value um, is is good in terms of impact and it's great in terms of a business model. And uh, looking ahead, if we look at the the prospects for carbon credits themselves, 
Um, how do you see the market evolving? Because obviously you're 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 a specialist in this area, and also as it does evolve, um, why should investors themselves be looking uh, more closely at projects like this, companies like this, and the whole carbon credit scheme? Well, the interesting thing from the last twelve months, you know, since the energy crisis and and concerns about inflation, is everyone had assumed that. You know, large corporates that carry the majority of the liabilities that are driving carbon credits markets would sort of sit back and do nothing and and keep their heads down. Um, there's sort of an assumption that that there were other things to worry about, and we've seen exactly the opposite, particularly in the resource sector. You know, the the oil and gas companies are sitting on a, a bounty of riches from the Ukraine crisis and and need to deploy capital into these areas. And, and all of the groups there that we work with are very, very active in, in working to secure credits. The uh, technology sector, you know, Amazon is designing its own protocols. Apple has launched the Restore Fund. All of these companies that recognize they have massive and growing, in some cases, climate liabilities are continuing to push. So there's a sort of skepticism that's crept in because public equities, you know, valuations are down across the board. Um, some of the funds that were launched as intermediaries and streaming and royalty models haven't really worked because they haven't been able to access credits. But our experience has been, if you've got high quality projects and you're an upstream developer, you'll have multiple bids downstream from large corporates that are just trying to meet their obligations. And um, right now, we're still nowhere near the scale of production across the sector that we need to be at to meet that demand. So we're going to be a short on supply I would say for the next eight to 10 years. And the pricing that we're seeing from private contracts, as opposed to what you see on the on the exchanges, um, is very, very favorable, uh, is very positive. So one, one of the things that's a bit misleading is people look at the carbon exchanges like uh, CIX or, or uh, some of the others that have been established, and they see relatively low pricing. The reality is that the majority of tons that are produced are, are sold privately, they're not sold through an exchange. So you don't get good price indication from the exchanges because often what's there is the leftovers that haven't been sold in private transactions. Um, when you do run high quality projects through through exchanges like the, the CIX auction a few weeks ago of mangrove projects from Sindh um, in Pakistan, which is also a place where we're doing some work, but they got uh, average pricing above $29 US a ton for 50,000 uh, tons. So you know, where you've got transparency around pricing, we're seeing lots and lots of upward movement. The market is incredibly short on supply. And the companies that made net zero commitments, you know, uh, two or three years ago or longer, um, regulators are now saying, if you told the public and investors that you're going to be net zero, you know, we're going to watch very carefully to make sure that you deliver on that. That's the, true in the EU. It's true for the SEC. So they're in a position where they have to fulfill their commitments uh, and, you know, we're working with with buyers, large corporates that have teams of 10 or 15 people running their buying and procurement process. So, you know, while everything else has been going on, the, there's been no abatement at all in the scale of this of this sector. It's been fascinating, actually. So exciting times ahead. Um, what and just finally, what can investors in Climate X expect from you guys? I know I know there's probably quite a lot you can't talk about right now, but um any any plans you're allowed to discuss? I mean, we we've we've released our roadmap for the coming year, um, and you know said that we expect to expand in Sierra Leone. We expect to complete our mangrove project sales there on a pre-purchase basis. 
We expect to move into neighbouring jurisdictions. We expect to expand conservation in Sierra Leone. We expect to expand our projects in Yucatan and in Suriname all within this year. Um, I, we're not going to add five or ten new jurisdictions because we only work in places where we've got really strong operational control. But you can expect to see that happen. And ultimately, the kind of validation that our revenue model uh, and investment model, you know, which is is all the way downstream to the large final buyers, is a pretty robust approach to, uh, to developing these projects. Um, you know, we're going to make some statements later in the year around what we think is the high watermark in terms of carbon uh, validation and revenue sharing in our ESG policy um, over the summer. And then we'll be talking as well about the technology and use of satellite data uh, that we're going to develop out to make sure that, you know, almost every day somebody can come in and take a look at the project from space. Um, yes, well, we'll certainly be keeping a close eye on the company going forward because it, it, it sounds um, relatively unique. Thank you very much indeed for, for coming on the podcast today, James. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for your time. You've been listening to the Armchair Trader podcast. Make sure you visit our website, www.thearmchairtrader.com for your daily dose of financial markets news and sign up to our free newsletter there.